the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Happy Friday, everybody. I'm Colleen Amar in for Bob France. When you hear that music, you know it's not Bob France. You know it is the one and only Colleen Amar. I think I'm, it's Monday, though. I'm sorry. Happy Monday. I wish it was Friday. <laughs> that, that didn't go out, did it? <laughs> it went out. Because <laughs> I've been here on Friday so much. I guess that's why. That's true. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Thank you, Johnny. Because people would have thought they would listen to a recording. That's why you have people that listen to you in the studio when you do live radio, because they can always correct you. Happy Monday, everybody. When you hear you hear this voice you, and it's music, you know. Bob France always lets me sit in this chair for him, and I so appreciate him. Uh, 216-901-0945 on Always Right Radio. Happy Monday. <laughs> it's been an it's been a, it's been a, uh, interesting week because I've been so lazy this week. I have done not too much of anything this week uh so this is the kind of the highlight of what i've been doing all week uh preparing for the show we have a good show for you today we have a very educational show we have come up in the second hour we have k carl smith who is one of the leading experts on frederick douglas the life of frederick douglas uh and in the country actually and he will come on we'll talk about the life of frederick douglas some of his Ideas that people probably wouldn't think too much of today, but uh, it's going to be it's going to be uh, interesting. Eleven o'clock hour, we have Scott Ulinger, twenty years CIA station chief in Central Asia. We're going to talk about Victor Bout, who's been in the news lately because of the Brittany Griner swap. Also, he's going to talk about the release of the Kennedy files this week, and we're going to get into the politicization of the intelligence agencies which has been a big issue the last couple of years so this guy is one of my favorite interviews scott Ulinger. uh he ran for congress in the state of pennsylvania he is a great interview very knowledgeable if you run a station of, for the central intelligence agency for a couple of decades you, you know a little bit and i've interviewed him like three or four times so uh that'll be a fun interview so we got a good show today um what i want to talk about is uh something that came to me last night from my good friend and a uh, brother from another mother, Jonathan Broadbent, he sent me this article, which someone um, uh, suggested that, okay, do we have a constitution? Is it in force? Is it worth anything? And some of the things in this article, I agree with some things I don't agree with, but I'm going to, I'm going to read you a good portion of it. And then I'm going to comment mostly on the other side. So uh, how much time we got for this segment, Johnny? 15 minutes. Okay, good. I'll, I'll make it good. So, um, 
So this is written by Pastor Andrew Isker. So immediately after Trump, conservative pundits and politicians seized upon the post that Trump suggested suspending the Constitution. Uh, and debate rags over whether he actually meant that or not. So setting aside this debate, the controversy brings up much more important question. Is the, the Constitution actually in force in 2022 to begin with? While the forms and norms surrounding the Constitution are certainly still standing, we still have executive branch, a bicameral legislator, a Supreme Court. Are these things are these things any more than a perfectly maintained facade of an otherwise rotting, leaking, collapsing building? Do we even have the same government that was created in 1787? Would James Madison or Alexander Hamilton recognize the America we live in today? To anyone who is not terminally naive, the answer is a very hearty, of course not. Even if we limit the question to the events of the 20th century, we do not have anything close to the Constitutional Republic established in 1787. The entirety of the New Deal was flagrantly unconstitutional. There never was any question about it. FDR had to threaten to pack the Supreme Court to prevent any constitutional challenge to our republic's transformation into a leviathan resembling a totalitarian state. In 1933, the U.S. Constitution underwent a de facto suspension to create the New Deal America, and that suspension was never lifted. Later still, after the New Deal and Second World War more fully transformed America into the liberal, democratic, totalitarian state we now live in, wokeness became the new U.S. Constitution in 1964 with the passing of the Civil Rights Act. What has been sold to us as a legal solution to America's racism was in fact the legal foundation for a very radical leftist egalitarian that dominates us to this day. This is the thesis of Christopher Caldwell's excellent 2020 book, Age of Entitlement. Outlawing discrimination is a vehicle for the leftist culture war. Reasonable, sincere, soft-hearted Americans were told that this would be the solution to America's racial conflict. Yet 60 years later, that strife is as bad as ever. And now it is used to force you to celebrate sodomy for your children to be taken from you and castrated without your knowledge. The entire DEI system, DEI, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, the tyranny of the uh, H.R. Herodon, the cult of tolerance and inclusion that suffocates all of us. All of this has its origins and basis in America's new constitution. Between the creation of the totalitarian administration state, in the New Deal and the abolition of any right to freedom of association in the Civil Rights Act. The U.S. Constitution is nothing more than a husk employed to keep Americans from revolting against their rulers. For example, Barack Obama can car bomb, I'm sorry, can bomb any country he likes. He can drone strike American citizens. He can mandate the purchase of health insurance. State governors can lock you in your home indefinitely. The president can mandate the certain uh, vocations receive a daily experimental injection and state secretaries uh, uh, can unilaterally change election law at any time they like. All of those things are perfectly const- quote, constitutional. But when someone like Donald Trump wants to fire certain members of the administrative state, investigate whether the previous administration laundered money through a foreign nation, halt immigration from dangerous groups, or even respond to highly organized left-wing political violence, or pursue foreign and trade policy to the benefit of actual Americans, well, apparently the U.S. Constitution isn't a dead letter after all. How should we think about the current situation? The first thing we must do is admit reality, then live in delusion. As much as we love it, the American Republic of 1787 is gone. 
It was gone long before you were born. All that remains are vestiges meant to confer its legitimacy on something completely different. Our current government is like German Kaiser or King or Russian Tsar giving themselves the titles to bolster the claim that they are the real Roman Empire. We should view our government and constitution in a similar way. You can call a Russian or a German Caesar, but that doesn't make them imp- the emperor or of, ancient, of ancient Rome. You can call Joe Biden, quote, the president of the United States, but that doesn't make him George Washington. The republic that George Washington resided over is dead and buried. We have to admit that in order to preserve the nation that he was instrumental in founding. For many, this is an unthinkable thing. So this this article goes on to finish uh, a little longer than this. Uh, Now, this pastor, Mr. Iskar, uh, Andrew Iskar, sounds like a very nice man. uh, Sounds like a religious man, uh, you know. However, I think this article, although I agree with some portions of it, I think is nothing more than emotional vomit. It's just a lot of disjointed comments. I think that shows a little bit of his own delusion um, in that 1787. There was no Bill of Rights. The original Constitution had, had didn't have a Bill of Rights. It wasn't this complete document. The Republic was a brand new endeavor that didn't have a basic rights uh, for average everyday citizens at the time. So, of course, this country doesn't resemble the Republic of 1787. Uh, In addition to that, there's been a pendulum, constant pendulum uh, shift, shall I say, that has always stepped on the Constitution depending on whose interest was being served at the time. And there's always been justifications for it. And I can go down the list on that. um, It happened during Reconstruction. It happened after Reconstruction. It happened, of course, as he mentioned, during FDR's, um, you know, presidency. It's because of FDR that we have a lot of the issues we have today. It's, it's because of uh, Woodrow Wilson we have issues today because people took it upon themselves to trample on the Constitution and to make policy from their respective branches. It's happened. Uh, it's happening now. It's always happened. Now. As far as his comment on the Civil Rights Act, uh, I think that he sort of took the entire Civil Rights Act and just dumped it in the trash. There are certain elements of the Civil Rights Act that were needed. You had state and local government colluding with law enforcement to suppress the rights of American citizens. It's something that could not be worked out on the state level when you have all the state uh, apparatus apparatchiks coming together to to suppress rights of the people. Blacks could not vote in much of the South. So what means would you have to change the levers of power if the power structure itself wasn't giving you the franchise to do so? So you can disagree with some of the public accommodations in the Civil Rights Act, but at the same time uh, is delusional to think that the federal government did not have a role in coming in, which actually we have a 14th Amendment which guarantees equal equal protection. And if you have state and local governments colluding law enforcement to suppress those rights, then who's going to protect the people? And let's just face it, the Constitution is enforced at the point of a gun, period. 
If you don't have guns, you don't, you don't enforce anything. These big bad mobsters who we see get indicted, they go to court, they get convicted, and they go off to jail peacefully. The reason why they do that is because the state has more guns, period. Uh, that's what it comes down to. Who has the guns? Who has the power? In, in these other countries, the, the criminals have the power. They have the guns, and the state is weak. And we may, who knows, get to that point where our state may be weakened by the criminal element. Uh, hopefully not. But at the same time, right now, the IRS, state, federal government, they have the guns, they have the power. And the Constitution is enforced accordingly. Now, the media, which I love to say this, the media is corrupt, uh, dishonest, and in many cases, they're stupid. They are, are participants in everything that this person has laid out, Mr. Isker has laid out in this article. They're, they're complicit in the corruption. They're complicit in the uh, violation of constitutional rights. The media is supposed to be the watchdog, the fourth estate, but they are complicit in this entire breakdown of the society. We, we, most of you know this already. That is one thing that needs to be fixed because the people are so deluded, so disinformed and misinformed about what's really happening. It's like that old saying, if a tree falls in the forest, is, 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 you know, if, if, if no one's there, does it make a sound? Well, it doesn't matter how big the stories are. We've had some of the biggest political scandals in the last 30, 40 years, but they have gotten no, nothing more than a whisper from the mainstream press because they have an agenda, and that is to disinform you, to disinform us. This is what we're battling now. So this constitutional republic is always been fledgling it's always been a battle to maintain it because guess what there are people who believe that the constitution serves their purpose and that is to suppress dissent to suppress things they don't agree with what i like to tell young people when i get a chance to speak to them is, is to protect your uh to, to protect someone else's rights is to protect your own so whether you agree with someone or not you better stand up for their rights because it's going to be you next and this is what the media doesn't understand. This is why they go after Donald Trump. They can break any law they want. They can suppress any rights they want as long as they get Trump. It does not matter. You can steal his tax returns. You can go after his family and associates. Uh, you can raid his home. Why? Because you're on the right side of, of history, so to speak, as they love to say. You are the moral force. And whatever you do in that pursuit is the correct thing to do. And rights be damned. This is what is, is happening. So those of us who really believe in, in this republic, we have to stand up and defend the Constitution no matter who is being oppressed. The other side can't seem to do that. Well, th there's a reason why, because they're, they're basically self-righteous uh, people who really spew words of, of quote-unquote democracy and the Constitution, but they use the Constitution to destroy the Constitution. We have to basically find out uh, who we are by standing up for the rights of people we don't agree with. That's how you fix this republic. So anyway, that's, that's my rant. Uh, we have a really informative show. I'm happy to be here on this Monday, sitting in this chair, in the studio, sitting there for my man Bob France. Love to be here. Khalid Namar, stick around.
Always Right Radio on The Answer. Welcome back, everybody. Always Right Radio. Khalid Namar in for Bob France. 216-901-0945 if you wish to get in. one 888 Um, <clears throat> so I'm, I'm going to talk about this later in the show, hopefully in the last segment, but Ben Carson's name was removed off of a school in Detroit, which had my blood really, really boiling. Um, and it makes sense, you know, for Detroit, some place I've been following for over a decade. I've written about uh, Detroit politics. They are a backwards, amoral uh, city. And if you're going to remove Ben Carson's name off of a building, you don't deserve Ben Carson's name off of the building, which I, I'm, I'm, I'll talk about that later. But that that is uh, one of the most disgusting things I've heard this year, uh, simply because he worked in the Trump administration. I mean, that's his only crime. Um, so Detroit, you know, thumbs down. So I'll talk about that later. Um, also, again, we at uh, in the second hour, K. Carl Smith, uh, one of the premier expression on Frederick Douglass will be in talking about the life of Frederick Douglass and some of his principles that people may not be familiar with. And we'll be talking to Scott Ulinger in the third hour, uh, former station chief of the CIA in Central Asia. We'll be talking about Victor Bout, uh, the politicization of the intelligence agencies, as well as uh, the JFK files, which has been a topic of discussion lately. So um, we'll be talking about that. Anyway, I'm going to take a couple of calls here. Uh, we got BJ North Olmstead. How are you doing? Welcome to Always Right Radio. You're on with Khalid Namar. Thank you for taking my call, and I hope everyone has a an amazing, wonderful, and awakening holiday. George Bush said one world government many years ago, and until the Constitution of this country is destroyed, that can't happen. And that's the end game here. America stands in the way of the one world government, whatever that government's going to be or its intention is to be. The, the people of this planet are losing their rights in many, many areas, but they're fighting back. They're fighting back in China. The women are rising up there. They're fighting back in Europe. And unless there's that kind of spirit to fight back to save this Constitution and the freedoms we have, this country will be socialist. And, the, and, and instead of the government representing the people, the people of this country have become the enemy of government. When you have a, gover- when you have a president that brings in pornographic dancers with penises that want to pretend they're women, what the hell do you expect to be social behavior to be? Stepping on the throat of people that have faith in their religion, uh, their belief in the Constitution. We are in a war of survival for this country and for the freedom of people have enjoyed in this country. I am 92. I've served in the military. I was a medic. I saw a lot of death. And they spit on the graves of the dead soldiers that sacrificed their lives for the freedom of this country. I hope Thank the you. young people wake up and get tough now. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you, BJ. Thanks for calling. Wow. 92 years old as lucid. As I hope to be, he's actually more lucid than I am now. <laughs> I'm sure he he knew it was Monday and not Friday. <laughs> Great call, BJ. Thank you. Wow, 92, seen a lot. Wow. All right, Colleen Namar in for Bob France. I'll be back on the other side.
Always Right Radio on The Answer. Welcome back to Always Right Radio. I'm Colleen Namara in for Bob France. So, um, you see the theme today? A little Steely Dan theme today. I'm a huge Steely, Steely Dan fan, and uh, whenever you hear Steely Dan, when I'm in this, in this chair, it's always an homage to my brother from another mother, Dan Messina. So, shouts out, Dan. I know you, hopefully you're listening. You know, you're not wrapped up in your, in your laptop right now. I know how work can be, but big fan of, of Steely Dan, so we're going to have a little Steely Dan theme today. Um... I know after the midterms, people were a little a little down. They didn't expect the results that they wanted. And frankly, that's true for me as well. But I think people need to have a little perspective. So I'm going to touch on that a little bit. We had three million more votes across the country than than Democrat votes, three million more votes. So what we saw was an effect on redistricting. That was a big problem. But I want to talk about our state in Ohio, because guess what? We can only take care of home. And Ohio, we did well in Ohio. We have some some fantastic uh, newly elected officials in Ohio who are going to. Uh, we hope, and I, I believe so. They're gonna they're gonna help rein in some of the some of the madness in in, in the state house. Uh, the high, the Ohio income tax is now on the chopping block. So all of you people who who uh, <laughs> Johnny's in the studio clapping, yeah. That is on the chopping block. That is a real possibility that within five years we could get rid of the Ohio income tax. And there is a study done by the Buckeye Institute that uh, lays out how this could be done and what it would look like. And so that is a possibility that is on the chopping block. And the reason it's possible is because we have, again, some of the uh, people who were elected to the to state house. And I'm going to shout them out in a second. Also, school choice. School choice legislation should pass sometime in the spring. And that, again, is the result of the victories that took place here in Ohio uh, on our side. So that is an, a, a good possibility that that will happen. Also, there is this issue of uh, the Supreme Court, which uh, the three main Republicans on the Supreme Court, Pat Fisher, Pat DeWine, Sharon Kennedy, all won and that was a major victory in this state for public safety. Uh, so that was a big victory there. This, that hasn't been talked about much, but that's a huge victory. I actually went to a fundraiser, got a chance to hear them uh, and talk to Sharon Kennedy, who is she's 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 actually terrific to listen to. She's actually a smart Elizabeth Warren. That's that's what I, that's what I say. She is. I don't think there is a smart Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> I know that's kind of an ironic statement, isn't it? <laughs> Sharon Sher- Sher- Kennedy is uh, is 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 brilliant, and I got a chance to talk with her. Has such a command of the issues, so that is a a, a victory uh, for us in the state of Ohio. Then there is this um, push to limit the number of taxing authorities in the state. There's far too many authorities in Ohio that can actually levy taxes. Uh, so we we definitely are in place to to rein a lot of this in, and I think that. Taking care of home, taking care of our state is the main thing we have to focus on. We can't fix Pennsylvania. We can't fix Michigan. But Ohio, we're in good shape. Now, the counties are terminally ill, and that's a whole other issue. But the state overall, we're doing well. We have control of the legislature. And some of the people that we have elected, uh, some of them I've gotten a chance to speak to in recent weeks, 
uh, like Nick Santucci out of Mahoning County, young man, 32 years old, uh, very, very sharp. Uh, he's going to do great things. Uh, Melanie Miller, uh, who rep- who's down in Ashland County. Um, uh, Donald Beach, Derek Marin, Adam Matthews, Susan Manchester, Thaddeus Claggett, who I got a chance to meet, that is down in Licking County. Uh, you know, very, very smart businessman, very innovative. Uh, Tim Barhorst, you know, these are people we, we have in that are going to do a good job for this state because we have to focus on what we can change, and that is right here at home. A lot of people get caught up in the circus watching the national news. And, you know, Florida's, Florida did well. Uh, they have issues in Arizona. They have issues in a lot of other places, but we can't we can't affect that, unfortunately. But w- what we can also do is always just focus on doing what we can do here in Ohio and electing the policy champions we have here in the state. So I'm involved in a lot of these things and um, talking to a lot of these elected officials, spending time down at the state house. Uh, this is what keeps me sane. It what keeps me hopeful is to know that we can affect change here because I, I don't plan on leaving Ohio. I think this is one of the best places, best places to live. I'll take the winners over the hurricanes any day of the week. Uh, I'm never going to root for another uh, college team than the Buckeyes. Um, I'm, I'm an Ohio guy all the way. So I, I think this is a great place to live. So it, and, and it, it can get better. It can get better. And it gets better with people being involved and engaged and not uh, discouraged based on what they're hearing from the national you know, press that we have about uh, you know, how they think things are going. Yeah, we have some battles in this country. We have constitutional battles. We have a battle with the other side um, on a very real uh, direction, which way we're going to go. But you got to keep fighting. You can't give up. That's why I like to talk to young people every chance I get. We, we you know, you either either you, you're going to quit or you're just going to keep fighting. And I think that right now this is a time where people need to really get involved uh, and know that this isn't it. It's not over. Um, there are no permanent victories in politics. So I think people need to uh, need to really, really focus on the positive and know that you live in a great state. We have some great things going on. Stay involved. Stay in, stay engaged. Um, so let me let me take a call here. Um, line one. Who who do we have? Oh, TJ. 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 How are you, sir? Hello. Are you there, TJ? Yes, I am. Khalid? Yes, sir. Shoot away. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I wanted to uh, uh, ask you something there, Khalid. You know, you were talking about the state may eliminate the state uh, uh, tax. Well, we, it, we, it's on the chopping block, meaning we have the policy champions in place and the push has begun to do so within five years. Yeah. You know, I have mixed emotions about that, though, Khalid. The mm-hmm. only reason, you know, that's going to help a lot of people, obviously. But, you know, it's going to hurt a lot of people if they do that. You know, people of lower income, you know, that are on, like, disability or uh, uh, retirees, they're not paying state tax, so to speak, anyways, because they don't have taxable income. But to make a difference, if they eliminate the state tax, they're going to have to increase the state sales tax, you know, to make up the difference. So wouldn't that kind of hurt a lot of the people on the bottom? Just it would be more like an inflation tax on uh, on the poor, you know, the people on the bottom. Um, I, honestly, I don't necessarily think so. Um, I think, um, well, first of all, it, w- it would be great to look at the, the Buckeye Institute study on that because they, they can break that down and how that's going to look. I think Ohio is 
we can do without it based on the, the, the spending that Ohio does, based on the revenue that we, we generate, we could do without the state tax. Now, you know, these, these uh, the county taxes are all basically set by the counties, right? The county sales taxes. Right. So like in Mentor, my mother used to go to Mentor to shop because the sales tax was lower there than it was in Cuyahoga County. I think that, um, you know, that's a county issue when it comes to sales taxes. However, the state income tax, I think we really could do well without it and we could compensate for that uh, in other means. And I think that uh, the Buckeye Institute study lays out a lot of those things. If you want to go look at that, go to the Buckeye Institute website and check out the, uh, that study. Yeah. Okay. I will. That, that kind of explains it. Cause you know, so, uh, you know, I know like in Florida when they eliminated, you know, like the state tax, I think what they did, they just put a, uh, a state sales tax on all the products. Yeah, I don't think we'll do that here. But I think in Nevada, Nevada uh, increased their property taxes. So a lot of people are saying, yeah, we don't pay state income tax, but we pay par- higher property taxes. So, Well, yeah, Cuyahoga County is real good with that one, isn't it? <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. If, if you want anything, <laughs> go to the homeowner and get it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, there's some, there's some, well, Lee Weingart did not win, but Lee Weingart, Lee Weingart had, a, had a proposal to try to eliminate uh, uh, property taxes for seniors. Uh, after I'm, I'm all for that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the problem is, you know, no matter what they do, some people will benefit, some uh, will not benefit. You can't have it, you know, where everybody benefits. I guess it's just not yeah. possible. Yeah. But I think we're all from, I, and I'm, I'm on record every time I get a chance to say it, the federal government does not need another penny. They do not need another penny. The federal government is a crackhead. They need not another penny, but unfortunately, they're going to get it because they hired a whole army to make sure that they're going to collect more of their money. And they're coming after the little people. You know, they're they're talking about this army of uh, tax agents to go after the rich. Huh. They're 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 at the point now. They're going to have more tax agents than super rich. So who are they coming after? They're coming after us. Absolutely. Uh, those of you who are uh, earning more than six hundred dollars via Venmo and Cash App. Uh, which is, includes a lot of small business people, uh, you know, hair, hairstylists, landscapers, you name it, are getting paid through these services, and the banks are going to be forced to report uh, how much money you're making through these through these apps, because the government again is out to get every single penny and squeeze every penny they can out of the American public. I don't think the government deserves another penny. They've wasted something like $8 trillion over the last 20 years. If you can waste $8 trillion, you do not need any more money. Thanks, TJ. Okay, thank you. Have a have a Merry Christmas, guys. Merry Christmas. Thanks for the call. Yeah, that is something that uh I, you know, I have I have a personal personal angst about taxes. I've paid quite a bit, including very recently. Uh I get squeezed a lot. Uh the Obama years made me very poor, uh or poorer, shall I say. Now, I'm 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 doing okay now, but cutting a check to the IRS is always painful. It is like your hand hurts and starts to cramp when you have to cut a check to these people who you absolutely detest. Uh, and it's not that we're about or against taxes because we actually have to have taxes to function. We know this, but excessive taxes now nah. excessive, you know, it, it's really beyond excessive right now. Um, and I think that uh, the fact that they waste so much for me, um, I, it's painful for me because I don't have any of the benefits that other people have 
who 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 get you know these huge refunds back. Oh, I just got five thousand dollars back. I got four thousand dollars back. I mean, what do you mean you got four thousand dollars back? Did you pay that much? You know, so <laughs> I don't get anything back. But I'm gonna I'm gonna do okay this year. I figured out some ways to uh, to help that. But again, our state is in a good position. But people need to really just stay engaged. Stay engaged. So we're at the bottom of the first hour. It's going fast. We'll be right back on the other side. I am Colleen Amarin for Bob France. Back on Always Right Radio with Khalid Namar, grooving to the sounds of Steely Dan. Thank you, Johnny. Let's be in a good Happy mood. Happy to help. Here's Steely Dan. Um, so something happened in Canada last night. Uh, six dead, including a 73-year-old suspect in a shooting near Canada's Toronto. And uh, six people, including a 73-year-old suspect, died and one was seriously injured in a shooting at a residential building in the city of Vaughan in Canada's Ontario province on Sunday night. Local police said the suspect was shot by shot at by police and he was pronounced dead at the scene. Ontario Special Investigations Unit said in a statement Monday morning. Um, obviously, a 73 year old suspect is very rare for this to happen anywhere. But I just I look at these stories when they happen, whenever they happen in the United States, we have some people in, and you can see them online. You can see people in other countries. They kind of wag their finger at us and is, you know, and we have some of our leaders who go on television and say things like, well, this only happens here, which is not true at all. Uh, we have unhinged people and dangerous people uh, in a lot of places, but I don't think that it helps for people in Canada who's had their share of problems, particularly this year. They've had mass stabbings. They had uh, um, uh, another mass shooting a few months ago. Um, to wag your finger at us because you have your own issues as well. They also have a lot of gang violence that takes place even in the Western part of Canada. They have it in the Eastern part in Canada near Toronto, near Ontario. They've had hell's angels in the mafia wars. I think in the nineties, I remember those wars they've had their issues, but they have sanitized news. We don't hear a lot of bad news coming out of Canada. They watch our bad news. We don't really watch any news out of Canada. Uh, And it's usually something benign. It's nothing really bad unless it's a major event like this um so I, I think that's just unfortunate and then when you have again politicians who who uh say well you know this is only happens here why does this only happens here and then people say oh, i'm gonna move to canada well i think when you compare canada to united states it's totally not really unfair in terms of uh whether you want to talk about gun deaths or we can talk about crime canada has about 30 million 33 million people California has about 30 plus million people. So when you compare the two, it it, it really makes sense to compare, say, Canada with California, 
in terms of size, population, not to compare a country that has about 10 percent of our, popu- our population. So I think that makes more sense. Uh, I actually am happy about one thing in Canada. They have lifted their mandate for vaccines. So you can now go into Canada now without being vaccinated. Very quietly, it was done. I actually thought I would never go back to Canada because I said I will never get that shot. But now I can go back and visit. It's a beautiful place. Uh, but prayers out to people in Canada who are uh, going through this bit of, of uh, a tragedy today. Not to make fun of anybody or point fingers. I'm just saying that have some humility and some perspective when you look at these issues. Uh, but anyway, first hour went fast. Next hour, Kate Carl Smith coming up on the life of Frederick Douglass. Please stick around. You'll enjoy it. Back to Always Right Radio. I am Khalid Namar in for Bob France today, 901-0945-216, 901-0945. We're going to be talking to a few callers later on, but we have somebody very important on the line. He's one of the foremost experts on the life and teachings and philosophies of Frederick Douglass. He has spoken to over 600 Tea Party conservative Republican groups across the country uh, very nationally renowned and, and well-respected speaker. He happens to be my cousin, full full disclosure, I have to say that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, author of Frederick Douglass Republicans and, and uh, a great book. Uh, we'll talk about that and more with K. Carl Smith. How are you, cousin? Hey, cousin, how you doing, brother? Nice I'm, talking to you. I'm Happy ex- holiday. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. This is the first time I've actually spoken to you on this platform. I've, I've, you know, we've spoken on my previous podcast, uh, which was the Todd Allen Show. But this is the first time I've gotten you in front of the audience here in Ohio. So thank you for coming on on, on relatively short notice. I know you spend a lot of time in our state. Not enough time up here in Cleveland, but mostly down in Columbus. <laughs> we got to do more. All it takes is the invite. I'll be right there on the first thing smoking. You know that. Absolutely. we got to get you up here. So you are the author of Frederick Douglass Republican, and you are the creator of the Frederick Douglass Messaging Strategy. Um, yes. Talk about what Frederick Douglass Republicanism is uh, and what is the messaging strategy that you've been teaching around the country for over a decade. Yeah, exactly right. Thank you for the question. Uh, Frederick Douglass Republican is not – a subgroup of the political of the Republican Party. So what it is, it is a uh, it's a movement. Uh, it's a movement of people who understand that as Republicans or conservatives, we have a narrative problem, we have a messaging problem, and it stems and it stems from the fact that we're using the word conservative to identify ourselves politically, and by doing that, we're putting ourselves at a disadvantage because that word has been so effectively destroyed and demonized by the left. And so in lieu of saying I'm a conservative, 
I genuinely express that I'm a Frederick Douglass Republican, meaning that I embrace the life empowering values that Frederick Douglass wrote about and spoke about, which are respect for the U.S. Constitution, respect for life, the belief of limited power of government, economic prosperity, free speech, school choice, all these quote unquote core conservative values. Frederick Douglass wrote about it, but most but more important, he lived it. So to be a Frederick Douglass Republican, as you can tell, is not based on the person's skin color, but based on those life-empowering values. If you agree with those life-empowering values, that's what makes you a Frederick Douglass Republican in lieu of saying conservative. Yeah, absolutely, because there was a... Um... <clears throat> Uh, and, and there's a forthcoming book on this subject written by an academic named Hiram Lewis, who talks more about how that word juxtaposed with the uh, more benevolent sounding progressivism uh, seems like you're you're basically the old white guy saying, get off my lawn. If you're a conservative, you're, you're, you're yelling, stop. You don't want any more progress. So that word, again, by the media by others have been demon has been demonized and it's been made out to be associated with old line uh, segregation, racism and discrimination. And we know the fact that that is not true. So let's let's go down the list real quick. So mm. one of my favorite topics that people love to talk about is Frederick Douglass's Fourth of July speech, which they always quote out of context. Talk about sure. Frederick Douglass view of the Constitution. You know, very interesting in, in that view of the Constitution. Remember, remember now, when Douglass escaped from slavery, his mentor was William Lloyd Garrison. And, and Douglas at that time said he was not much of a reader. So the things that the Garrisonians shared with him, he took it as face value. And one of the things that the Garrisonians believe that Douglas took on is that the Constitution was a pro-slavery document. But Douglas did something very interesting. He went and read the Constitution for himself, and he read Lysander Spooner's The Unconstitutionality of Slavery. Mm-hmm. When he read that, he said, oh, my God. <laughs> What I've been told is not true. The Constitution is not a pro-slavery document. It's an anti-slavery document. And the word, because slavery exists before the Constitution was even written. So Douglas had this epiphany, if you will, but he was a critical thinker. So he he shifted his thinking because he became more of a reader and realized the Constitution is a glorious document if we live up to what's in it and not uh, interpret the document in a way where it, the franchise is one group of people versus another. Douglas said, this is live up to it. Live up to it. It's a glorious document given to us by great men. So that's what opened my eyes about Frederick Douglass. Because, you know, Khalib, I went to a historical uh, black college in uh, Alabama, Alabama A&M. I was taught in college that the three-fifth clause in the Constitution referred to the fact that blacks were three-fifths of a human being. As a matter of fact, that's still being taught today. But it was Frederick Douglass who opened my eyes when I read what Douglass was in Glasgow, Scotland, 1861. He was in a debate, and Douglass gave clarity to the three-fifth clause. And basically what he said was the three-fifth clause has nothing to do with the personhood of a black individual, but it was a compromise effort used by the northern free states upon the southern slave states. And basically what Douglass said was a a black person in a free state is worth five-fifths of a vote. And a black person in the slave state was worth three-fifths of a vote because those in the slave states, they want to count every black person in captivity as one person, one vote. Right. And the northern states said, no, you free them. We'll let you count them that way. But since you can't free them, we're going to limit your congressional representation based on three-fifths 
of a vote of a black person. So it has nothing to do with personhood, but it has things to do with congressional representation and power. So when I read that, that's what turned me. That's what turned my thinking right side up. Now, it, and, and, and that's a great point, because even when the Dred Scott decision came down and blacks were determined not to be citizens, there were free blacks who were voting uh, at that time and even before. So a lot of people assume that when you're black, you were, you couldn't vote and you were, quote, three fifths of a human being, which, uh, in fact, there were blacks who were voting and who were, who were fully enfranchised. So that is something that is uh, little known to many people. Uh, let's talk about the limited government perspective of Frederick Douglass. Yeah, you know, when you're when you're when you're enslaved, um, you're, the form of government, somebody govern your life is your slave master. So when I talk about how Douglas believes in limited government, you know, because here's the core, here's the uh, inverse relationship. Governments have power, and we as people, we have rights. When the government has more power, we have less rights. When the slave master have all power, you have no rights as a slave. So there's a there's that relationship that Douglas was concerned about in terms of power. Because um, there's several quotes from Douglas. Douglas said, "When people sit, back, I'm paraphrasing, sit back and, and just accept things, you know, as they are in life, and you don't agitate for your rights by challenging government, you you, you get what you you get what you deserve." But Douglas also understood that there's a time when government has to step in and to protect the human rights of its citizens, especially when you have when you have states. Like in the South during the Civil War, that was violating black rights. They wanted to free the slaves. So the government, uh, Lincoln had to step in and do something from the government level to step in to ensure those human rights of blacks are being protected. So there are times when government has to take a role, but oftentimes it is government, the power of government that takes away our rights, free speech, uh, religious, you know, religious liberty. Douglas talked Douglas talk gloriously about the power of free speech. Douglas said on one occasion, he was in Boston, Khalid, he said, tyrants cannot tolerate free speech because they know the power of it. Yes, absolutely. And so that's what's going on. When you want to ban free speech on college campuses, you're a tyrant because you don't want diversity of thought. Because if I have free speech and I can let people know what you're doing and point out the ways that you're airing your ways, and I can win that argument, people are going to listen to me. But if you don't want that to happen, and you, your, your argument is based on what? Uh, a card game, a shell game, people are going to find you out. So the, when, when I started reading the writers of Douglas, because he, he wrote about all the things we're dealing with, Douglas actually wrote about it. Douglas actually wrote about parental choice when it comes to education of your child. He wrote about immigration. He wrote about the right of people keeping their arms. He wrote about, as I mentioned, free speech. He wrote about respect for the U.S. Constitution. Yes. All these things that the mm-hmm. uh, socialist Marxists or Marxist liberals are attacking to oppress us and rob us of our God-given rights. Douglas actually wrote about it and spoke about it. And that's one thing I like about Douglas. A lot of people don't see Douglas as a philosopher. I view Douglas as the greatest writer, speaker, thinker when it comes to liberty when it comes to U.S. Constitution, human rights. Yep, and we're going to get into... By all, far. Yep, we're going to get into a few of those things because one of my favorite topics that he wrote about, uh, and actually I've read about him in your book, Frederick, Frederick Douglass, Republicans, and you should all, we'll talk about how you can get that book. Uh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> he talked about give the black man, or give, shall I say, give the Negro equal opportunity and let him fall. 
If he, yeah. you know, let him stand on his own. If he falls, let him fall. So talk more about Douglas's view of personal responsibility. You know, um, Douglas speaking to a group of abolition abolitionists in Boston, and they asked him the question, what shall we do with the Negro? Um, and they asked him that question because at that time, about four million blacks who were enslaved in the South were going to be free because of the Emancipation Proclamation. And he said, they asked Douglas, what shall we do with the Negro? And Douglas said, what do you mean, what shall you do with the Negro? Don't you think you've done enough? You made him a slave. <laughs> Douglas said, leave him alone. Yes. And, and mind your own business. And I think later in that speech, Douglas said, stop treating blacks like they're a special class of citizens because of their previous enslavement. Douglas said, you didn't do anything special for the Irish. Just treat us fair but no favor. Stop passing laws to put us at a competitive disadvantage your Jim Crow laws, your slavery. Stop doing things to put us at a disadvantage and stop passing policies trying to help us out. Doug said, leave us alone. And this is K. Carl uh, putting this piece in. But what Doug is basically saying, stop treating black folks like they're a social guinea pig with your social justice ideas and strategies that do not work. So Douglas said, there's a quote from Douglas, he said, quote, Douglas said, your interference is causing him positive injury. Ha ha. I wish I could. Oh, God, I wish he could speak to people today. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This is, that's what well, we can. We just, we just get into his writings and we got to uh, understand that the, if we're going to save America, protect our republic and uh, create racial healing in this nation and destroy Marxism, the best and the most effective liberty message to destroy Marxism is with Frederick Douglassism. Wow. Yeah. I mean, we, there's so much to get into with, with his life, which is very, very fascinating. And uh, Douglas, if I'm not mistaken, was advisor to about six U.S. presidents. Five. Five. Yeah. Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. Ulysses S. Grant, James Garfield. Rutherford Hayes and Benjamin Harrison. Yes. Okay. Five. Yeah. Five U.S. presidents. Okay. So, talk about his relationship with Abraham Lincoln, because I think Lincoln looked at him fairly favorably. I think there's a a famous meeting that took place where, uh, I think he showed up at Lincoln's second inauguration speech. That's correct. Okay. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they met on three occasions. Well, the first time when they when they met, you know, Lincoln had they thought that blacks were intellectually inferior to whites until he met Douglas. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so they were not, and on my readings of uh, the lies, they were not friends, but they knew they had to work together in order to save a nation. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they had, they had respect for one another. So they were not chummies. Okay. They were not buddies like that, but they, they, they knew they had to work together in order to save a nation. Cause think about now when Lincoln gave his first inaugural address, Douglas wrote a scathing editorial. Uh, I mean, he chastised Lincoln and said, look, you just spoke with a forked tongue. Because Lincoln, in that speech, if you remember now, in the first inaugural address, Lincoln said, look, y'all knew I wouldn't go in slavery. <laughs> y'all knew it. That kind of thing. So Douglas wrote about that. And, but Lincoln, one thing I said about Lincoln, Lincoln improved. And why did he improve? I, I'll put it this way. It's because Lincoln, Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, Wendell Phillips, Charles Sumner, they pushed Lincoln to success. Yes. 
Yeah. That's the key. It's through agitation, mm-hmm. through consultation. And that's why it's, it's so important that, you know, a lot of people now that when uh, you want to talk to somebody and have a different point of view, it's why you talk to them. No, we got to talk to them. Yes. We got to have the conversation. I remember I was reading a, uh, an article where one of Dr. King's sons said that his father, MLK, uh, met with members of the KKK on weekends. You know, that conversation, they have a dialogue. That's something when, when you had mentioned that to me when we spoke earlier. Uh, this week. And I can tell you, it shocked me because I did not know that. I did know that uh, I grew up in the Nation of Islam. Most people know and some people don't know. But the Nation of Islam used to meet with Klan members uh, all the time in private because they had a thing in common. They didn't like each other. They said, you don't like us. We don't like you. But we have to figure out a way we can separate from each other. So that was interesting <laughs> that they yeah. could sit down and talk. <laughs> and we got people that can't sit down and talk. And people who despised each other sat down and talked regularly uh, without That's shooting right. each That's other. Right. <laughs> That's, That's right. interesting. Matter of fact, that interview with Dr. King was on CNN. I think Don Lemon was interviewing uh, Dr. King's son. And when Dr. King's son said that, <laughs> Don Lemon was speechless. <laughs> he said, yeah, but we got to have this conversation. That's why I remember when uh, Trump had had uh, Kanye West come out to Mar-a-Lago and he brought that racist with him. Yeah, uh, Nick Fuentes. And, 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 yeah, and 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 the press is just beat up Trump. They didn't Trump, uh, his people didn't handle it right. The way, look, you got to bring these people in. You got to have a conversation with them because Doug said on one occasion, "I'll work with anybody that wants to do right, and nobody wants to do wrong." Once you realize that person you're talking to don't want to do right, that's when you step back. But you got to have the first conversation. Absolutely, that's how, that's how they should have spent that. Yeah, and, and I think that um, <clears throat> the the leadership of the past and. Uh, uh, William, I think it was uh, William Monroe Trotter. I think that was his name. Uh, mm-hmm. Who who was thrown out of the White House by Woodrow Wilson because he started to agitate Wilson to his face about his yeah. reneging yeah. on his promises to black people and threw him out. Everybody knew Woodrow Wilson was a racist, but you had to talk to them because they're in leadership and they're in power. People do the opposite nowadays. They just well, I don't want to talk to you. It's not well, about that's, what, that's yeah. what the left. Yeah. That's what the left wants. Yes, the left. The left don't want racial healing. They really don't want it. They talk. They really don't want it because if they wanted it, they wouldn't demonize somebody for having it. Exactly. That's not. That's not part of their circle. So yeah, yeah you're exactly right. We got to have these conversations because we got to understand: are they working with us or they're against us? You don't know that until you talk to them. Yeah, absolutely. So what what we'll do is on the other side, we'll get into um, <clears throat> a couple of more issues. Frederick Douglass's. Uh, relationship with Christianity, which uh, formed we his got, seeds of we, liberty. Kali, we got to get into that word conservatism, because I heard something in your promo before your show that yes. I want to talk about. Absolutely. We'll get into that as well. We'll talk about Douglas uh, Douglas's entrepreneurship, which a lot of people may find fascinating. We'll get more into this. We got Kay Carl Smith, the one of the leading experts on the life of Frederick Douglass in the whole United States. And he's uh, he's lives in Alabama. He's from Alabama. Um we're going to have fun with this subject. Um, we're going to be coming back and get more into it. If you want to call us, 888-281-1110 or 216-901-0945. If you've got any questions or challenges you want to talk about. But until then, stick around. I'm Khalid Namar. On the other side, we'll see you.
Always Right Radio on The Answer. Khalid Namar back with Kate Carl Smith on the Life of Frederick Douglass. Again, uh, let me give out the numbers 216 901 0945, 888 281 1110 if you want to get in. So, we're going to get into the uh, whole conservative term uh, in a bit. We got a couple more points I want to cover with Kate Carl Smith on on Douglas. So, in, in from my understanding, Douglas's seeds of liberty were planted in him by people who who originally taught him to read with the Bible. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the other part of that, you know, when Douglas was 12 years old, I think it was, he had 50 cents, and he went out, he bought this book. It was a textbook, I believe it was, called The Columbian Orator. The Columbian Orator. The Columbian Orator was a textbook used by more of the affluent families, but it contained the writing and speeches of uh, on liberty and natural law uh, from some from the great writers and speakers. George Washington's speeches in there, Benjamin Franklin. You can get this book on Amazon, by the way. It's called the Columbian Orator, uh, Cicero, um, and so that. So along with the Bible, it was the Columbian Orator that also helped shape his worldview, if you will. Um, because if you read uh, Douglas's autobiography and were to get the Columbian Orator, one of the speak, one of the there was a well, there was a dialogue between a slave master and a slave, and Douglas said that dialogue between the slave master and a slave, is, which is entitled "Dialogue Between Slave Master and Slave," that was one of the things that really motivated him and inspired him uh, to run away from freedom and to desire freedom. Um, so the Bible and the Columbian Orator. Okay. Excellent. Yeah, I'll have to look at that. Um, I wasn't familiar with that part of it. I just knew that he had received, uh, uh, you know, an education in Christianity uh, from a very, uh, I guess, <clears throat> sympathetic couple that he came across. And Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. yeah. So what about the Second Amendment? What was Douglas's thoughts on the Second Amendment? I mean, he, he wrote about it. Uh, he, he, he Really, he wrote about all of them. <clears throat> you know, I gave you the other one about free speech. Uh, earlier, but also the right, <clears throat> the right of people to keep and bear arms. Yes. Um, Douglas said, look, if you're free, you're a free person, it is your right to, to, to bear arms, to protect yourself. And especially if he said, especially for you're a black person, you're a black man, you got that right to protect your family. So this whole thing about, because you remember the whole thing about gun control started, uh, when black folks start getting guns to protect themselves from, uh, from, for example, the KKK, that's when gun control was really started. And so Douglas talked about the, the, the right of the people to keep and bear arms. I can't recall quite, unfortunately, what speech it was, but he, there are definitely speeches out there because Douglas wrote, wrote about a lot. That brother, he wrote a lot. He wrote a lot. To me, he wrote more than the Apostle Paul and Dr. King put together. He did a lot of writing. And fortunately, we have this literary legacy today of Douglas to help educate and awaken people from Marxism because, think about it, it is impossible to win an argument with a runaway slave about his love for liberty, <laughs> his admiration for the founding fathers, his idea on the importance of right to people keeping their arms, what he said about free speech. How are you going to win that argument? It's impossible. That's why we got to leverage Douglas today to save our republic. And one of the more fascinating things, K. Carl, is Douglas's wealth when he passed away. Mm-hmm. 
uh, how successful he was. He wrote, you know, multiple books. He amassed bestsellers. Yeah, bestsellers. Yeah. He he amassed a fortune of I think at that time I think was it half a million dollars. Uh, yeah, a little bit more. Uh, not, not quite. Not quite. He had at the time of his death, uh, he had three hundred thousand dollars in savings. Wow, that's back in money in those times. So if you calculate inflation, that's over twenty million dollars a day. So think about it: a man who was a slave for twenty years, uh, he died a one percenter. <laughs> wow! So that's that. When you when you when you tell people about the when you talk to young people about success and uh, how to be successful by discovering your God given gifts and talents, and you tell Douglas' story, they quickly get the idea that they cannot out victimize Frederick Douglass. So therefore, all your excuses go away. <laughs> yeah. You start to apply yourself. You start taking education seriously because that's exactly what he did. Unbelievable. $300,000 in savings in the 1800s for a former slave. I think that I feel like a bum now. Uh, <laughs> I feel like a bum. Wow. And, when and it's, I, it's all about people say the Doug was a genius. I don't think he was a applied himself. Right. Knowledge is nothing without application. He applied himself. And he spent time. Uh, he was an avid reader. He taught himself how to play the violin. As a matter of fact, one of the sons was a concert violinist. Um, so he didn't spend a lot of time playing on the on the place on the PlayStation. <laughs> he, he was reading. He was reading. That's what I'm trying to get my young my young grandchildren to understand. You gotta have the you gotta stand the ratio to learning. I said for every hour you playing some game, whatever you're doing, you gotta spend three hours in your books and education. So that's the ratio we live by in the Smith family. Absolutely. And, and, and this is something I actually learned uh, from Malcolm X. Malcolm X spent uh, seven years in prison. He came out very, very educated on a, a variety of subjects, history, philosophy, you know his history, religion. Didn't he? Absolutely. He said everybody should be locked up in their life at least once. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but 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 I would tell you, I took this to heart when I left because uh, I I too briefly attended an H uh, H HC, HBCU and in in Alabama in Tuskegee Alabama and mm-hmm. when I left school it was very difficult uh, couldn't afford to stay but I I took some things from Malcolm X and I said well I can still read I can still study because education is free college isn't. Right. So yeah, as, long, yeah. so as long as I had a library, I spent hours and hours and hours and hours at the library downtown Cleveland, which is massive. Now I have one in my house. So um, I, and that's every day for me. So that's for the Douglas. That's for the Douglas. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So Fred Douglas had a massive library. He had like three, three to four hundred books in his library uh, in, in home up in Anacostia. Wow. And he read those books, some some of them two or three times. Wow. Yeah. I did, again, I feel I feel like a slacker. I need to step my game up. Uh, <laughs> well, well, I definitely have because of that reading Douglas. I said, I, said, I, I got to pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah. lastly, th- there was this clash, I, from what I understand, between I won't say, well, between Douglas and the feminist movement, which sort of started to take shape yeah, right, yeah. later in his life. Uh, touch on that real quickly. You know, yeah. Well, what happened to the... Uh, uh, so this feminist movement, and, and then Douglas was very much in support of women's rights, uh, women's suffrage, not abortion now. When I say women's rights, it's about women's suffrage movement. And uh, he worked uh, He worked with them. He supported them. He spoke for them. 
But the, the split became when the women's movement started talking about how they felt that women's rights to vote should uh, should come first before black men. And matter of fact, they they said to Douglas, "These black men are buffoons. So we should women's should be able to vote first. Douglas would live it." He said, no, we're not going to tie the two together. Or oh, they wanted women's rights to go along with black men's rights because they saw black men's right to vote was, was coming soon. They wanted to tie the two together. He said, no, don't tie the two together because by tying it together, they prolong it. And so he went off when they categorized men that black men that way in, in the argument that women should get their right to, uh, to vote first. So that's when Douglas just had a, and, had a problem with that. And the, but, and the split with the Garrisonians. Uh, they, the guests only believe that the country was a slave document. And also because, you know, when Douglas started speaking, when Garrison hired him, they wanted Douglas to tell his story, okay, about being a slave. Then all of a sudden, Douglas started to become more philosophical, not just telling, not only telling the story, but being philosophical about what's going on in slavery. So they told Douglas, that, Douglas, we don't need you to be a thinker. We don't need you to be a philosopher by anything. Just people don't care about what you're philosophizing about. Just come tell your story. And so that was one of the things when I read that, why Doug escaped, because they didn't want him to show he could think. They want him to be like a carnival show, come here, future the slave, Frederick Douglass speak, and market him that way. Not as a philosopher, not as a thinker. And that's one thing I think is going on right now. A lot of people today don't view Frederick Douglass as being the greatest American a liberty messenger because of his slave experience. The founding fathers didn't have that. None of them were slaves. So Douglas had this form of slave experience. To me, that makes him the leader when it comes to talking about the importance of free speech. The slaves didn't have that. Uh, the U.S. Constitution. So if you wanted to awaken someone about the importance of our republic, you leverage Frederick Douglass and share what he has to say. Because why? The left can't call Douglas a racist he was a victim of racism. Douglas wasn't a slave owner. He was a slave. But in his writings and in his speeches, Douglas affirmed the founding fathers. He affirmed the Constitution. And the left, Khalid, they have no answer for that, and they never will. And which brings us to your work messaging around the country and doing just that, uh, changing minds and opening people up to the life of Douglas. Uh, and we're going we're gonna, to uh, get into this changing of messaging regarding the word conservatism, which uh, I will set up by uh, talking about this article by Hiram Lewis, who is an academic uh, and who wrote that uh, conservative in the Wall Street Journal article in, in uh, November 25th, he said conservative is a bad label for Republicans' good policies. The narrative of progress is far more attractive than the prospect of standing athwart and yelling stop. So we'll we'll, we'll definitely, uh, you know, get into that. Uh, and, and, and because you've been saying this for quite a while. For over 12 years. <laughs> exactly. We've over. been saying exactly. We've been saying this for over 12 years. We've been saying stop using the word conservative. Yeah, we don't, don't even call yourself that. Okay. So yeah, so we're going to get into that in the last segment. Stick around. K. Carl Smith, Life of Frederick Douglass. Interesting topic always. Stick around. I'm Khalid Namar. Hush not child. 
Right Radio. I'm Khalid Namaro in with K. Carl Smith. So, K. Carl, um, something you've been saying for 12 years, uh, this word conservatism has been, uh, I guess, rendered to be poison by, you know, the mainstream media has done a great job, I tell you, um, on this. And this gentleman, Hiram Lewis, now he has a book coming out talking about uh, how this word has become bad label for Republicans, good policies. And he says in this wall street journal article, uh, sister disappointing showing in the midterm elections, Republicans have been trying to explain what went wrong. The answers they have come up with Donald Trump was a handicap. They appealed exclusively to the base. Their candidates weren't likable, all have merit, but there's a deeper and more longstanding issue. Republicans have a narrative problem that originates with the idea of quote, conservatism itself. Prevailing political mythology holds that the Democratic Party's policies are, quote, progressive, meaning they promote change toward greater justice, while the Republican Party are conservative, meaning they try to slow or arrest their progressive change. Well, this progressive change, as William F. Buckley Jr. put it, a conservative is someone who stands athwart history yelling stop. In this framing, there is a natural momentum toward progress in human affairs. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice, Martin Luther King Jr. said. But conservatives resist this progress out of concern for excessive disruptions of the ability of the public to adapt to change. So some of the things in that article, I agree with some I don't. But you've been saying that for, again, 12 years. Tell us your thoughts on this whole label that you think is detrimental to the to the uh, to the movement. Well, two things. Number one, um, the left has demonized the word conservative very effectively. So when you tell someone you're a conservative or you say you're, let's say, for example, I, I tell someone about my black conservative, that's what I'm saying, but that's not what people are hearing. What people are hearing is I'm a black racist. Just take the word <laughs> conservative and move races in there. Yep. You tell someone you're, you're a Reagan conservative, you just admit it to them that you're a Reagan racist. If you tell someone that you are a constitutional conservative because they didn't know what they had demonized the word of the Constitution, too, now you just told them you're a racist racist. And now you're on the defense. You can't win the narrative. You can't inspire anybody to change how they vote because that word has been so effectively demonized by the left. And, uh, Khalid, you'd be happy to know that back in 2018, during the second hour of the show, uh, Rush Limbaugh made the comment, and I quote, he said, stop using the word conservative. Don't call yourself that. So where do you think he got that from? About, about five, about eight months before that, I got a call from the Rush Limbaugh show. And uh, the executive, 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 executive producer said, we like what you're doing. Keep it up. We're watching you. Uh-huh. So we've been saying this for the past 12 years. So it's not just, and it's not only it's been demonized by the left, but there have been some Republican conservative missteps in history where that word conservative has become culturally ingrained, especially in the black community, to be racist. And now when our kids go to college, and get the socialist indoctrination, they've been taught that conservatives are Nazis and racists. So now these little socialists going back home calling their parents racist. As a matter of fact, I had a parent tell me the other day, they got a call from this child in college. Said, Mom, guess what? 
Did you know that you're a racist? <laughs> so uh, it don't take uh, it don't take a, a political strategist. It doesn't take somebody that's a, in academia to understand or come or to come up with the best uh, the idea of the answer to solve this problem. And so what what that writer said is true, but it's deeper than that. It's it's all about how that word's been demonized, and there's been some things that happened uh, history wise where that word conservative has a racist connotation. Now, here's the problem I have the article. Like you, I saw some things I liked, some things I didn't like. But here's something. But the question is, what's the solution? Yeah. He did not offer a solution. Is he going to come out one in his book? I don't think so, because he didn't come out in the article. Yeah. What's the solution? We know we have a narrative problem. We've known that for 40 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, uh, didn't Dr. King mention something about that word conservatism? Yeah, let's go back to July 2nd, 1964. This is when Lyndon Johnson ran for the presidency and Goldwater was the uh, Republican nominee. Yes. Here's some dots you got to connect. Because when, when I was attacked by my friends one day because I used the word conservative, I, I said, okay, why is this word so triggered, uh, politically triggered like that? So went back, did some reading, did some research. Don't have a PhD, Khalid, but I've done some PhD level research yeah, I want to share with absolutely. you. Absolutely. So when... When the civil rights legislation went through the process, you're a racist, Dixiecrats, senators, they voted against it, Democrats, they voted against it based on racist reasons, okay? They were flat-out racist. There was a certain Republican senator out of Arizona, he also voted against it, not because he was a racist, he voted against it based on constitutional grounds. His name was Senator Barry Goldwater. Yes. Robert Bork, who was a Yale University professor at the time, wrote a 75-page opinion that Goldwater used to vote against the legislation. So Goldwater voted against the civil rights legislation not because he was a racist. He voted against it based on uh, constitutional grounds. As a matter of fact, Khalid, Goldwater was an integrationist. Absolutely. It was Goldwater... Oh, so, in 1953, he uh, integrated the Senate cafeteria with one of his black staffers, one of his, one of his few servers. Yep. So hold that. We're going to come back on the yep. other side and continue the discussion. And with K. Carl Smith on the life of Frederick Douglass, uh, you can actually look up K. Carl's book, Frederick Douglass Republican, and we'll give you more information about that. Stick around. We got a little bit more. I'm Colleen Namar, and for Bob France, Always Right Radio. back to the final hour of Always Right Radio. I am Khalid Namar, in for Bob France. So, K. Carl had to run. We were, we were flying. It was a good topic, good discussion with K. Carl Smith on the life of Frederick Douglass. Uh, I would highly recommend you can get his book um, on his website, kcarlinc.com. K-Carl-I-N-C.com. Uh, the Frederick Douglass Republican book. It's a thin read, and it's very informative. A lot of information packed. 
uh, in that book, kcarlinc.com. What you can do is go to uh, Bob France's Facebook page, leave him some feedback on the show. Go to my page, leave me some feedback. Uh, Khalid Namar on Facebook, you can, you know, do that. We'll love your opinions um, on that. So I always like to know how I'm doing here. Hopefully I'm doing my, my brother Bob Justice in this seat. We have one of my favorite interviews uh, coming up now. His name is Scott Ulinger. He has been 20 years the CIA station chief in Central Asia. Love to interview this man. He's on to talk about Victor Bout and a few other things. Scott Ulinger. On the line, Hello Scott. There. Sure I am. Thank, <clears throat> thank you for always on short notice coming in to talk to me, especially on this airwave here. I love uh, your insights on things. I know you're much sought after for your experience in the agency. And, and and we got a lot to talk about this in the news lately with a man I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh, and that is Victor Bout. Uh, tell us what you know from your 20 years in the agency about Victor Bout. Well, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, Victor Bout, actually, if I'm not mistaken, he was actually born in Central Asia. So he was an ethnic Russian who was born in, I think it was Tajikistan, which is one country that I served in when I was uh, an operations officer in CIA. Wow. So, um, and then he became, he became the Lord of War, like the, the movie that uh, Nicolas Cage is in, that's like somewhat, you know, very loosely based on his life basically supplying uh, weapons to a lot of um, insurgent groups and terrorist groups, particularly in Africa. And so, um, you know, not unexpected, you know, typical of the, of the moronic or self-destructive policies of uh, the, you know, of the Biden administration, you know, he was, he was basically given back to the Russians uh, after having been found guilty. And he, he had done about 10 years or eight years of a sentence. And uh, of course the, the Biden administration, uh, traded them because uh you know they don't care about stuff like that and they got back um you know uh grinder the uh female basketball player who had in fact violated russian law by like bringing in things that i believe she knew were illegal and she got caught at it that stinks but you know it, it doesn't it doesn't mean that victor bout who was responsible maybe for the deaths of thousands of people should have been exchanged for now how where was he getting his weapons? Was he just buying Russian hardware and selling it to these countries? Uh, he was that plugged into the Putin regime? I mean, uh, somewhat, yes. But then also, of course, you know, have to remember in the Russian military, there it's a tremendously corrupt organization. So, you know, the same reason that you are seeing, you know, such abysmal battlefield performance by the Russian army in Ukraine is because of the, the deep corruption that goes down all the way to the lowest level. And so, you know, Victor Bout was able to capitalize on that, too, with um, you know, getting a lot of sweetheart deals and getting a lot of arms, you know, like wink-wink, that um, that officially maybe the Russian government denied, but they, 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 could, um, they had deniability, but they were involved in it. And then also just some corrupt, you know, corrupt junior officers and things like that where, it's it's absolutely normal in the Russian army that you know generals have soldiers build their dachas, their summer houses. That you know ammunition goes missing, that weapons go missing, and so um, you know he was able to capitalize on living in a society like that. Now, when you were knocking around Central Asia, Moldova, Afghanistan, uh, with the agency, was he a factor in supplying weapons to some of our adversaries in that region? Not, not at the time I was there, really. 
that wasn't really, not at the time I was there. Um, I don't recall seeing his name mentioned in like, um, a, a, like official traffic and things like that, even, even when I was in Central Asia. I think by then he had maybe moved on to Africa more. And he was already under the microscope of the, um, I guess, of the FBI in the days when maybe the FBI cared about that stuff instead of caring about, um, you know, kicking conservatives off of Twitter. So, <laughs> so <clears throat> right now he's out of jail, <clears throat> right? What do you think his role will be? You think he will go back to, you know, his old ways of supplying weapons to, you know, to Africa? Uh, what do you think his role will be? I think I think it might be something like that. Um, certainly, the propaganda value of this is enormous for Russia. So, like, I mean, Russia, you know, needs Russia has been, you know, going, taking some heavy hits lately, and so uh, this is a, a gift from the sky for someone like Putin, who can say, "Okay, look, I'm such a great guy. You know, okay, there's thousands dying in, in Ukraine of, of our army, but I did get Victor out about back because the Americans are so incompetent, and and you know, maybe they'll give him some seed money and help him. He could be good." for stimulating some business um, abroad for um, for Russia, maybe as a almost as a as a spokesman for the Russian armaments industry, which is going to be taking a hit because what's what kind of it's similar to the what we saw in ninety one in the Gulf War, the Russian equipment has not generally performed well, and that led to a in ninety one the same thing with Saddam's uh, with the Iraq the Gulf War which I was in. Um, and it revealed that American systems were better. And the result was that the third world often turned to the United States or France or somebody for weapons because they were very disappointed with what they saw with Russia. And the same thing is kind of happening now where uh, the Russian armaments industry, like they're, they're under a lot of um, you know, pressure right now because they, they, can't, they don't have the output to continue the Ukraine war, but also because the foreign sales are going to be drying up because people say, you know what, their weapons are garbage and I'm not buying them. So now, now this thing with Paul Whelan, um, <laughs> the Americans, we, you know, we've spied on each other, obviously, for over half a century. Um, Paul Whelan was in what, corporate security. And the Russians obviously know that the Americans are not stupid enough to send a an American corporate security person over there, quote, as a spy. And uh, nor do I think and maybe, you know, more about this than I do. I don't think he was handling anyone. Why was he? In no, the, no. Yeah. Why was he in the country? And why do you think they arrested Paul Whelan? I mean, OK, it's a good, it's a good question, Khalid, but you're reading like a little bit too much into it. Um, he's just the wrong guy at the wrong time. You know, he was there for the money or for the, you know, because he wanted to, to party every night or something. I mean, he was there for just innocent reasons or, you know, because that's where his career path took him. And then the Russians said, OK, this guy is a prime guy for us to grab to use as some kind of, um, you know, diplomatic chip. So they um, so they arrested him. I mean, the, uh, all regimes like this um, do these kinds of things in North Korea, in Iran, in China. They regularly round up innocent people, maybe ministers who are you know Christian uh, missionaries, etc. And they and, and they basically use these people as as chips to get back real criminals mm-hmm. or real spies. Iran was is always very good with this. And right, I'm sure he has like no. And, you know, no affiliation with the intelligence community because, for one thing, he'd be an idiot to do that right. in such a vulnerable position. And I hope that the competence at the CIA, which has gone down since I left, uh, they wouldn't try to even use someone like him because he would be radioactive. So I think it's you know he's an innocent guy caught up 
you know, he shouldn't have gone over there in that kind of a role because, you know, you're dealing with a, in a country where the rule of law basically doesn't exist. Yeah. And so now that he is there, they've gotten the big fish that they wanted. What leverage do we have to get him out, if any? <laughs> zero. We have zero leverage. And that's, and this is, you know, another sign of, you know, just the, in, the I, I cannot emphasize enough. You know, I was in the, I was in the, I was a naval officer for 28 years. I was a CIA officer for like 16, 17, whatever. But what I'm saying is I cannot emphasize, and so I have some insight into how the government works, et cetera, but I cannot emphasize more, enough the incompetent, the rank incompetence we see at every single level of the Biden administration. I mean, look at look at the head of uh, nuclear waste who was just arrested <laughs> stealing a woman's suitcase. But what I'm saying is that's typical. That's a feature, not a bug of this system. So these incompetents run these things. And 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 if you want to think it from a, from a very cynical point of view, see Democrats in particular, sometimes Republicans, but the Democrats in particular, they want incompetent people working for them because see, Kelly, if you're incompetent and I hire you, you're not going to stray off the reservation and do something I don't like. But if you're incompetent, can't even do your job and have to constantly call Scott every day to say, Scott, what do I do now? I've got you under control and you're going to do what I tell you. So that's why, like, incompetence is a feature of, like, communism, whether it's North Korea, whether it's whether it's um, Russia or whether it's um, or whether it's the Biden administration. They they're just incompetent. I mean, look, at they were negotiating with Iran. They were still negotiating with Iran to, to, uh, about um, nuclear, you know, nuclear weapons development, and only the fact that you know they've been killing students by the bushel, like seven hundred people dead in Iran, is the only reason that the Biden administration isn't still trying to conclude a deal with an evil regime that negotiates in bad faith. So, like their incompetence is a feature, not a bug, of this administration. <laughs> and you, you're very, very familiar with international media, particularly in that part of the world. When we have a guy like Sam Brenton get arrested, looking the way he looks, being who he is, having the position that he has, does this play very well in in the Russian media? Uh, you know, you think they're blasting this story all over the country that this is the guy we had looking at our nuclear waste lipstick? And, oh, of course, uh, yeah. of course they use <laughs> they use this stuff uh, immeasurably. That's why, like for when um, you know, when I was overseas. You know, I was able, I was an effective uh, case officer because, you know, like, uh, you know, America was still like, you know, pretty good and you could make a case. But what I'm saying is nowadays, I wouldn't even want that job because like you're trying to sell a product that at this point probably no one wants because they're like, but this guy, wait, Scott, how am I going to trust your organization to keep me alive when your government is hiring people that look like this guy? (laughs) You are, you are inherently the, the word like that the Russians like to use. You in, are inherently not a serious guy. You're not a serious country the way you do things. So why should I trust you to to keep me safe? And that's why I'm sure not only because of things like that, the way people perceive America, but perhaps because of the, um, the competence of the present day officer, I'm sure that the CIA is far less effective than it was even 10 years ago. I mean, look at look at the FBI. I mean, it's a it's even a worse example. I mean, the revelations of Musk that there were 60, 60, 60 FBI officers monitoring, monitoring Twitter and social media all day, not under a warrant, 
but simply looking for people like you and me who said, you know, that election was BS or whatever. In other words, they're just warrantless searches of people's stuff so they could ban you from Twitter or things like that. And, and this is at the same time where, you know, maybe there's an open border and there's God knows how many people from Hezbollah coming through the border, but no one cares about that. And God knows we're not going to test them for, um, we're not going to test them for COVID, even though you're going to lose your job if you don't get tested <laughs> for COVID. I mean, we live in an absolutely upside down world that if, if I went back in time, 15 years, and talk to a younger Scott Eulinger that this is what we'd be living in, I'd say uh, future Scott Eulinger is on crack. It, it, can't, it can't be that, that way, but it is. You know, Scott Eulinger is my guest, former station chief and central agent for the Central Central Intelligence Agency. Speaking of the uh, politics of these agencies, what do you make of this letter that was signed by all these intelligence officials? (laughs) You know, talk about that. Okay, I will briefly. Okay, that that is um, yeah, that's a particularly sore point with someone like um, there were that was signed by fifty one officers that. that oh the hunter laptop yes is is a russian disinformation operation well anyone with any intelligence anyone with any smart with an iq i'm not talking about an intelligence background like you Helly, you're a smart guy anyone who was smart realized you know just whatever living living in the united states that this hunter biden thing was almost certainly true that because you know like you'd read about him before and the guy was never never had his act together but the, the speed at which 51 directors, you know, these guys are all the equivalent of generals and admirals, you know, the director of the DNI and the head of the FBI and the head of the CIA and, 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 and 51 people, some of which, by the way, the lower, uh, the lower end of those 51 are some people I actually knew, some people I actually worked with a little bit, and they were my, basically my superior officers. But boy, how fast they were to sign that thing. And of course, now we realize, oh, by the way, you know, um, the Hunter laptop thing is uh, absolutely true. It's absolutely true. So, of course, how does the mainstream media address that right now? Well, they simply pretend it doesn't exist. So you see nothing about it. Okay. So they just are are ignoring it and hoping it goes away. So hopefully there will be um, congressional um, action and then they'll be forced to deal with it when it's in front of Congress, I, I hope, but I'm not holding my breath. So, so, so what I'm saying is these guys all sold their souls and are any, and the New York Post is covering this, thank God, and you're mocking these people. But the question is, are any one of those 51 individuals going to be penalized in any way, career-wise or otherwise, for doing this? And I don't know if that's true, but I'm sure they're all holding on to their $400,000 a year jobs as consultants to the, to the intelligence community in Washington, whereas Scott Eulinger is persona non grata within that community, because I actually predict things that come true. You know? well, well, this letter, they, they had to know that they were signing their name to some BS. So they're either now the fact that we know that it, it's, it turned out to be true, that makes them either incompetent or corrupt. If they Bingo. sign their letter. That's right. They're either incompetent or corrupt or both. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And see, that's the, and that's the dirty and see, that's the, the dirty little secret. Like people need to understand is that there are some people on the radio, for example, and they'll criticize the FBI and the CIA. Right. But they're always very kind of careful to like, oh, well, I'm only talking about the leadership. I'm not talking about the rank and file. The rank and file, they're all good guys. 
It's just the, the leaders that are bad. Well, I'm sorry to disabuse uh, people of that, but that's not the case anymore. The rank and file are almost as bad as everybody else. Wow. And why is that? It's because maybe it's not that they're evil people by nature, but they have decided to stand by and do nothing. Why? Because they don't want to make waves. They've got a mortgage to pay. They've got a kid in college. And because of the way they live their lives, they have like financially compromised themselves. So now they cannot stand up for what's right, or they cannot resign in disgust. They're just along for the ride now. And so this is what you see everywhere. And so this is why the FBI, <clears throat> it's not just a leadership problem. It's a problem down to the, to the almost to the lower ranks. And, and it's the same thing in the FBI. And then this is also the reason why you know, the FBI, I don't know about the CIA, but the FBI is having a hell of a time recruiting people now. They can't get decent people who want to work for them because People like you and I who have kids or whatever are like, I don't want you going into the FBI or I don't want you going into the military. And then the military and the FBI are scratching their heads going, wow, how come we can't get the kind of uh, talent pool we used to get? It's because you've totally compromised yourself. You've disgraced yourself. And no one wants to. And anyone competent doesn't want to be a part of your team anymore. Wow. Well, yeah, there's, there's, there's definitely more I want to get with, uh, on touch on coming up with the recent release of the FBI files on the JFK assassination. I'm sure you have some thoughts on that. Sure. Uh, Scott Ulinger, former CIA station chief, Central Asia, is my guest, one of my favorite guests. We'll be back on the other side to touch on the JFK files. Stick around. To everyone he meets, he stays a stranger. Whatever move he makes, another chance he takes. He won't live to see tomorrow Secret Agent Man Secret Agent Man They've given you a number And taken away your name Right Radio on The Answer. We're right back in our last segment on the Bob France Show, Always Right Radio. I'm Khalid Namar on with Scott Ulinger, former station chief of the CIA. We've been covering uh, some issues with the agency Victor Bout, the agency's politicization, uh, covering up for, for, for the Democrats, basically. Uh, suppressing information on, on big tech. Uh, I want to ask you, Scott, about the release, recent release by the National Archives of 13,000 documents related to the Kennedy assassination. So uh, the question I want to lead with is they, they never release everything. There's something things they will not release. Do you think there are people who know exactly what happened with the Kennedy assassination and that the, the, the public will never know f the full information, but there are people who really know from A to Z what happened. Yeah, I would say so. It's simply because of the fact that, okay, to declassify or decide to release documents means people have to read them. And that means people read the documents that they decided not to declassify. <laughs> yeah. 
So there is some, there are people who, and I'm not saying so. These are people who could be our age, like they weren't involved; they were babies at the time. But they do know what happened. And so, and by the way, it, it, it's important to point out that in 1992, they, uh, Congress passed the JFK Records Act, which mandated by the year 2017 all records would be released. So we still have three percent in 2022 not released. Now, why is that? Now, again, simple logic, because there are things in there that the government does not want us to know, because otherwise they would have released it already. So, so what do you think, uh, or, or I'm not expecting you to talk about what you may know, but what do you think happened uh, with the assassination? Do you think there's the, a cooperation between the intelligence agencies and organized crime, which they have a long history of cooperating together? Do you think that's what happened? I think I think it's quite possible. Right, mind you, I don't have any like. Speci- I know about this only because of my. I, I've read several books on the topic. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, being an agency overseas operations. I mean, uh, you only need to, you only it's the need to know. I only know what I had a need to know about Russia, et cetera, because I was in Central Asia. But you know, it's when I was in uh, working against the Russians, I didn't need to know what we were doing against China or, or uh, against uh, other countries, because they want to try to guard secrets. But So that's called, you know, um, basically compartmentation. So there's a lot I don't know. And I never heard anything about Kennedy or space aliens or anything else when I was um, <laughs> at the agency. But, um, but I have read some books that make a pretty good case where I, susp- I have a feeling that um, Oswald may have actually been Oswald may have um, actually worked for the CIA at one point in time, uh, because look, let's look at some of the facts. Um, Oswald, this is 1962. People didn't defect to the Soviet Union, and when they did, they certainly did not come back without uh, being, you know, pounced on by everyone. But apparently, Lee Harvey Oswald went over there, married a, a, a lived in Minsk, Belarus, married a Soviet wife, and came back with hardly any inquiry into him at all. And that just doesn't make any sense in the year 1962. So I have read some stuff that, like, there, there are some kind of indicators that he may have been part of some kind of a, a, a desperate CIA plan to try to get information on what was going on in the Soviet Union. Because you have to remember, there was no social media. There was no we spy satellite technology was new. And we did not know. We, we were clueless as to a lot of what was going on in the Soviet Union, weapons development, political developments, et cetera. And so in desperation, we, there, there seems to have been a program where like, we set up some people to defect into the Soviet Union and then like, maybe kind of report on, on, it seems kind of crazy now, but this is how desperate the agency was, maybe you know, report on stuff and then re-defect. And then you report on stuff. And that's why someone like Oswald was not immediately pounced on by the FBI. Okay, what the hell were you doing in Minsk for three years? Because he was actually working for the U.S. government at the time. And, and I heard someone mention the other day that he had an employee file with the agency. And someone said, you, you wouldn't have an employee file. Uh, I forget the name of the file, but. Uh, Two, uh, uh, 201? Yes, yes. So if you said if he had one, that means he was working for them. There's no way he was not. If, if he had a, a 201 file? Uh, well, a 201 file, actually, no, he could. It, it, um, it's possible to have one, well, uh, under the laws I know. It's possible to have one and not, and not be in the pay of the agency. But see, 
So when I when I uh, when I try to recall what I what I conclusions I arrived at. So like basically, um, Lee Harvey Oswald was maybe uh, you know he had some maybe he had some mental problems maybe, but what I'm saying is he definitely had a past with the CIA. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying he was working for the CIA when he pulled the trigger. But what I'm saying is that could be maybe one reason why, okay, we need to suppress this information because merely the fact that he had a relationship at any time with the CIA could be a major problem. And of course, then you could look at the other side. Um, some people say, oh, well, he was a Soviet agent you know, working for the Soviets and that we, they don't want to reveal this stuff because it would mean that a Soviet agent killed the president of the United States, which could be grounds for a nuclear war or something. But... Um, that doesn't it doesn't doesn't seem to sit as well with me. Like when, for instance, he worked on uh, he was I think stationed in Japan in the Marine Corps, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, and he was a regular guy. And then, like they say, the story was that some people who know him, he went away for about three weeks, and he came back spouting all kinds of communist stuff. <laughs> and so there were some people who say, well, um, this was part of his his. CIA legend that, okay, we're setting this, this guy has volunteered, he's going to pretend to defect to the Soviet Union, and so he's got to kind of play the part of being a communist. And so, Because suddenly, like, there was this big change they noted in him, like, he was just a regular guy, and suddenly he's spouting all this communist stuff. Yeah. So when he did say he was a patsy when he was, um, when he was captured, mm-hmm. and then, of course, his, his rapid assassination before he had a chance to talk are pretty suspicious. <laughs> yeah. Well, when someone goes away nowadays and comes back spouting communist stuff, we call that going to college. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Very good, very good, very good. Listen, you're right. (laughs) You're always fascinated, Scott. Thank you, Scott Uliger, uh, for always joining me on short notice. I love talking to you, and uh, I always will have you on whenever uh, the news calls for your insights. Thanks so much, brother, and hopefully I'll see you at CPAC this year. Okay, perhaps, perhaps. The world's full of surprises. Okay, thanks a lot, Elliot. It's, right. it's always good to talk to you. All right, Scott. Scott Ulinger, former station chief with the CIA in Central Asia. Peter Kirsten and I will be on these airwaves tomorrow for a free-for-all. Free-for-all, so call in whatever whatever in your heart, whatever's on your mind. Call and talk to Peter Kirsten now tomorrow here on these airwaves. Tomorrow morning on Always Right Radio. Uh, it's been fun. As always, uh, with K. Carl Smith, go to kcarlinc.com to get his book. And Scott Eulinger has plenty of interesting stuff on the Internet, podcasts, articles. Uh, great guy to talk to. One of my, one of my all-time favorite guests to interview. I'll be hanging around Facebook, Khalid Namar. Let me know what you thought of the show. Let Bob know what you thought of the show. And I'll... Who knows when I'll be back, but have a Merry Christmas, everybody. Happy holidays uh, and be safe. And God bless all of you. Take care.
General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.